Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about wildfire culpability, sheriff's department shakeups, LAPD accountability, and a quick update on supportive housing production across the city. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. It was a pretty big week as far as like climate change and environmental justice yeah. stuff went. Yeah. Um, so as I've mentioned like several times, I'm, I'm doing a lot of organizing work with the Sunrise Movement in Los Angeles, which uh, if you're listening to this Friday, uh, you'll have time to show up at our meeting. We're going going to be at the uh, Corinth uh, uh, Avenue uh, LA City Council office where Bonin's office is on the west side uh, Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. for our hub meeting so come out if you're listening to this on Sunday uh, might be a little bit late but again it is at 6 p.m. so you can still probably make it but Gotta listen to us first thing in the morning. Yeah, but uh, you know, I'll make sure the 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 iTunes uh, you know notification hits you at like six in the morning, just hey. so you know you got plenty of time to plan. But anyways, uh, we were at the Energy, Climate Change, and Environmental Justice Committee meeting this this week, uh, chaired by Nuri Martinez, who's putting up a uh, resolution. Well, they're sending it back to the uh, CAO and CLA's office, and they're the folks who actually prep the bills and prep the language mm-hmm. to talk about establishing a, com- a climate emergency mobilization department. So. So basically, if things go the way that the Leap LA and the Stand LA Coalition uh, want it to go, we're going to get a department here that's going to take all of the chief sustainability officers from all the other departments and coordinate them so they can actually all work together on like getting LA to be carbon neutral and getting LA on board with the Green New Deal because we keep talking about having a Green New Deal uh, nationally at a state level, at a local level, but nobody's really come up with a way to implement that. And here in LA, we have officers in each department that are dedicated to sustainability and resilience and how to like prep us for the climate disaster. None of them talk. None of them are coordinating. They're all siloed. We've had the uh, Office of the Petroleum Administrator. We've had the Environmental Defer- of sorry, the Environmental Affairs Department all kind of like fall by the wayside and go nowhere. And so the city really wants to do something useful and wants to have some way to actually bring about carbon neutrality and build a sustainable future and stop urban oil drilling and all of the stuff that the Sunrise Movement and the Green New Deal are aiming to achieve. So it's really exciting to see this moving forward in city council, to see all five members of the committee backing it, uh, and to feel like when it goes to full committee, it's going to have a lot of support. Like Herb Wesson has been pretty out in front saying he wants a Green New Deal for LA. Garcetti keeps talking about how he wants a Green New Deal for LA. So this is like a really exciting and big development. And uh, there'll be another committee meeting on April 16th where we're going to get the report back and begin to move what move towards what this resolution is actually going to look like, what this department's actually going to look like, and where we want it to go. So at this point, I'm pretty excited. I'm really happy to see local buy-in on this. That's fantastic. Yeah, and you were also at the uh, Homelessness and Poverty Committee meeting hearing. Yeah, there. so there was a discussion in that meeting. Um, there were a number of agenda items that just passed uh, on consent. Um, but then there were speakers who came uh, to discuss some concerns about the use of Triple H funds uh, in terms of rehabbing uh, existing SRO type, uh, uh, you know, residency hotels and, and whatnot uh, in Skid Row in particular, but also as a general feature of uh, how the city was going to be tackling permanent supportive housing um, across the entire the entirety of Los Angeles. And one of the things that there were a number of speakers who came from LA Can who gave comment, specifically citing the example of uh, a a a residential residential hotel where there were a number of 
residents who were effectively evicted by the landlord hmm. when the landlord then turned around and received $10.3 million in funding wow. uh, from Triple H to do a rehabilitation of the building as well as providing permanent supportive housing. Uh, the folks from LA Can made a very clear uh, argument that uh, they believe that the city attorney uh, is going to have to make some changes relating to how that uh, funding was was spent because it does not appear to be in compliance with uh, the Triple H policies where there's there's not supposed to be any displacement that comes from this. This is all of the new permanent supportive housing is supposed to be new permanent supportive yeah, housing. Yeah, it's supposed it's to be supposed like to be net rehabbing. zero. It yeah, shouldn't exactly. cost us anything. Yeah, so anytime that there's displacement, it should be really uh, a, a huge red flag. And that was what they were talking about at this. So it, it was also, I, I made a point to the um, to the committee that uh, the best type of permanent supportive housing that you can build in a neighborhood in terms of getting it put in and making sure that the, the local community has buy-in and isn't going to object to it is to make it look like regular housing. Mm-hmm. If you make permanent supportive housing that looks like a regular apartment building, nobody notices that it's even there because you know homeless folks aren't going to be lining up in front of it. They don't get kicked out in the morning and then have to come line up to get a bed in the evening because it's not a shelter. Yep. It's permanent supportive housing. Yep. Then nobody even realizes that it's there. I mean, I was at a uh, a speaking event that uh, Herb Wesson and Kevin DeLeon did for Measure B back uh, in the fall, and it was hosted at a permanent supportive housing complex. The most remarkable thing about it was the complete unremarkability of it in yeah. the context of the neighborhood. It, there was no way that you would have known that it was permanent supportive housing unless you went in and you know saw for, from the inside. Yep. From the outside, you couldn't tell at all. It just looked like a very normal LA apartment complex. I've been to a couple of uh, everyone in talks and like organizing meetings where they show uh, some of the the models of like permanent supportive housing that yeah. exist already in the city, and they look really nice. They look like new luxury market rate developments. Absolutely. And the only dis- difference is that they've got people living inside who need a little bit more help, and generally have social workers and like psychologists living there to help people transition. Uh, but other than that, it's just it slots into your neighborhood. It's fine, and it's a better way to like understand and get to know your neighbors because a lot of the folks that end up there have really interesting stories. Like these are human beings and they have dignity and like they didn't just get born onto the street. There's some way they ended up there and it's often like a really humanizing story and helps you understand like there but for the grace of Buddha, go you. Yeah, exactly. And on top of all this, from a NIMBY perspective, it is good for your uh, property values to have this kind of thing put in the neighborhood because you don't get you know, all of the, the, the negative aspects of, of, of having unhoused folks be stuck in your neighborhood in tents where you've got to deal with, you know, sanitation sweeps and the over-policing that comes alongside it. And you don't have what people often consider, you know, eyesores. There, there are tents, there's trash, there's all of this that's associated with people not having anywhere to live. When you've got permanent supportive housing, they don't have to be outside on the street. They can be inside. They can get the services they need, and they can live a life of dignity. And it's building a better community. Absolutely. Um, it's it's just it's it's kind of amazing how once you open your mind up to what like is actually being proposed, yeah. how much simpler it looks, and how much easier your neighborhood will work, and how much better your neighborhood will get, uh, just with the inclusion of a place for people to live. Yeah. Uh, so before we move on to the stories, I did want to say for those of you listening, uh, keep in mind, Chris and I don't have superpowers. You can just show up at these committee meetings too, uh, and you. It's good yeah, that you so. should. If you've got like a Tuesday off or a Wednesday off, and often these these m- committees meet during the middle of the day in the week because you know this is 
regular their, people's jobs. jobs yeah. So it's it can be a little awkward if you're working full time or you have a regular like nine to five schedule. But if you've got a day off to go and sit in some committee meetings, go do it just to A, see what it's like. And B, it's really easy to make comment and get on the record. It's not scary. Nobody at the dais is going to like throw stuff at you and LAPD is not <laughs> going to escort you out. There was a guy who showed up and like disrupted our meeting and he was just politely asked to leave. Yeah. You know, it's it's a very uh, kind of like polite and formal process, but it's also one where like city government seems so much closer and easier to affect when you go and just sit in these meetings. So if you want to do one thing in the next month, try and hit two LA city council committee meetings and just like any random meetings, there's dozens and dozens of committees and ad hoc committees. You can kind of take your choice. They meet all across the day. Uh, If you have ones that you want to check out, go check out the LA city clerk's calendar so you can find committee meetings. But honestly, go show up, do a little bit of like LA city hall watch and, uh, you know, tell your friends to do it too. Yeah. Just watch out for the gadflies because they do get they're pretty yeah. abrasive. And yeah, yeah. They did. They got kicked out of this meeting. Yeah, of course that that happens. <laughs> but uh, so let's let's go ahead and turn to the news, and uh, we're going to start by talking about the Thomas Fire, which we've had a lot of fires. So yeah, you may not have. remember the Thomas Fire, but it was the gigantic fire uh, that broke out in Ventura County back in 2017. So we've had some uh, new findings in the investigation as to what started it. Let's talk about that. Yeah, we've also had a little bit of controversy surrounding it because uh, go figure, the people that the uh, the fire department blamed don't want to take the blame for it because culpability is expensive. Uh, yeah, so the Ventura County Fire Department has determined that the cause of the initial ignition uh, cause of the Thomas Fire, which was, as we mentioned earlier, the largest fire in modern California history, which burned more than 280,000 acres. Well, sorry, slight correction. It was the largest fire in California history, in modern California history, uh, but it only held that title for a half a year before the ranch fire took over in August of 2018. Uh, yeah, folks, climate change is definitely, definitely real, and everything on, in California is on fire all the time. Uh, unsurprisingly, the Ventura County Fire Department found that power lines had been the root cause of this colossal fire. Um, basically, what it breaks down to is high winds in early December 2017 apparently caused parallel lines to sway violently enough uh, for electricity to arc between them. This then sent a shower of sparks and molten aluminum bits down onto the dry vegetation beneath the lines. And then, of course, fire. So the fire destroyed uh, 1,343 structures, most of which were homes. It also killed one civilian, and it killed one firefighter during the nearly 40 days that it was raging through uh, this portion of the California coast. Yeah, no, I, I remember the the uh, satellite pictures of the smoke it's, just yeah. blanketing the Pacific, reaching all the way up to Seattle, like causing air quality issues in San Francisco and Oregon and Washington, and you know, just kind of showing like localized climate disasters are always going to reach across borders. Borders don't actually exist on a globe. So like the fire doesn't care where you live. It's just going to destroy and put that toxic smoke up. And uh, when those houses are burning, like it's a lot of stuff that isn't supposed to burn. It gets real nasty. Um, So then on top of all this, like the, the absolute just mother nature cherry on top was that we got torrential rains like just a few days after the fire was finally extinguished. Uh, And of course, heavy rain and burn zones are a particularly dangerous combination. These rains uh, triggered mudslides that started up in the burned out zones in the hills above Montecito, 
killed 23 people and wiped out even more homes that the fire didn't get to in the first place. And this kind of also goes to this this um, predilection we have in California to build big, beautiful houses <laughs> in very areas, terrible yeah. places yeah. Uh, because like those mountains and hillsides weren't meant to be dug out and have a million dollar McMansion on them. They but weren't. They do look pretty. They do. Like I actually, my cats I adopted from a woman who used to live in Camarillo. Oh yeah. And she's like, hey, have you ever seen that photo of like people running down the side of the mountain when uh, the the cliffside is collapsing and it took like three homes with it? And oh, I was geez. like, oh yeah. She's like, yeah, I lived in the second house from the top. <laughs> That's happened to us before, but don't worry, we're going to rebuild again. And I was like, ma'am, please don't. I know you like your ocean views, but stop building on that part of the mountain. Then the mountain is literally telling you to stop. Like yeah. that's why your house keeps falling off the mountain. Yeah. So this also has to go in in a little bit of like we have to restructure the way in which we think about where we're living and how we're interacting with nature, and especially with climate change as it is and the vegetation as dry as it is and us having these like intense droughts, uh, these uh, urban inter- uh, sorry, urban interface fires, these mm-hmm. wildfires that are part wildland, part urban uh, and part suburban are just going to get worse and are going to become bigger problems. And we can't rebuild million dollar houses every five years after we have one of these. This is just way too expensive for the state. It's incredibly costly for the people who live and work in these cities. And it's just a really terrible way to allow development. Yeah. yeah. It just, it, it, there's, it, it's all linked. It's all linked. And this is on top of like, so what did the fire cost us? Because it cost us a couple billion, right? Uh, yeah. So the cost was pegged at around $2.2 billion. So uh, SoCal Addison is who the Ventura Fire Department uh, is claiming was responsible because it was their lines. Uh, they, you know, a lack of, uh, either it was a lack of maintenance or it was, the, they weren't being built properly. There's potential for a criminal investigation that could be tied in with all of this, uh, which would be very nasty for whoever gets caught up in the crosshairs of that one. Um, the original spark was in the Amloff Canyon. Uh, it was, came just after 6 PM on December 4th, 2017. But, uh, SoCal Edison is claiming that the fire actually started 12 minutes before they lost service in the region and that the fire was burning for at least least 15 minutes prior to the start time that Ventura County Fire Department reported, which was 6.17 p.m. So I only tell you these times in particular because that's what like all of $2.2 billion worth of culpability hinges around is they're saying that the fire started 12 minutes before the power went out. The power, I mean, honestly, I don't know that the power would all be tripped off if the lines are just arcing. Um, There's, that's a lot of power that's going through there. And if you've ever screwed anything up with like a lithium polymer battery, you know that the, the power can zap real quick and make big loud bangs and and, and shower little bits of metal everywhere. Uh, and it, it's it's entirely possible that the the lines would keep going and still have power on them uh, while everything caught fire. Well, and this also ties into like kind of what we're working with the with the climate emergency mobilization department, where we keep talking about how much money it's going to cost to do like the Green New Deal, either for Los Angeles or California or for the United States in total. Uh, but what we don't talk about is how much it will cost us to not do anything. You oh, know, yeah. we can't pay $2.2 billion per fire when we have five to 10 of those fires a year That's, every year. We we will go absolutely bankrupt <laughs> yeah, as a state. Uh, plus all the infrastructure that gets destroyed, the people yeah. who are left without housing. Um, it's just like the cost of not acting just gets more expensive the longer we go. And like allowing SoCal Edison to be like, oh, we don't have to pay for all the stuff that we destroyed because we're too greedy to keep the vegetation away from our power lines is definitely not helping that. No, it's absolutely not. Yeah, so that's, again, I renew my calls to nationalize 
all of the utilities yes. in the state of California <laughs> because this is dumb and we need to stop paying SoCal Edison. Public utilities are the solution to so many of these problems. Yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, shift our focus to the uh, LA County Sheriff's Department. They had some. Uh, they've had personnel issues <laughs> yes, uh, from yes, day one with Villanueva, um, who I feel like uh, deserves some accolades for hoodwinking the progressives in the city for thinking that he was on their side for a bit because he was saying a lot of the right stuff. Uh, and then he got into office and was like, surprise, I'm going to protect all the abusive deputies and rehire like a domestic abuser. So uh, we have some more fallout seemingly coming from that. Yeah, and it's all linked together with all of that, of yep. course. So, uh, all right. What, what it comes down to is that uh, Sheriff Villanueva, Villanueva's second in command is out of the job. Mm. Uh, his name was Ray Leva. Uh, he had come out of retirement, uh, medical retirement, to help Villanueva take on this new job, uh, which you know he won the election for, uh, and he lasted just three months before uh, being removed from his position. No, I think he retired. He resigned, right? Or was no, he Leva was removed. Oh, yeah, okay. F- full blown. He, he he. Well, his resignation was sought. Ah, uh, so, okay. So he resigned, but because he was told uh, to. Yeah, something along those lines. Uh, That's my understanding. Anyway, I apologize if I'm slightly mistaken. Anyway, uh, Leva had taken a medical retirement back in 2016 for back and wrist issues, uh, as is often the case with a bunch of uh, folks who work for the sheriff's department or LAPD for a long time. Uh, he had previously run for sheriff back in 2006 and was a very strong supporter of Villanueva, donating $3,000 to his election campaign. Uh, Leva had expected to serve in this position as second in command man for at least five or six months, doing so as a civilian following that medical retirement. But apparently Villanueva wanted somebody who was a sworn officer in that role, said as much, and then Leva was out of the job. Uh, so this is, an, as we mentioned earlier, this is a sign of yet more turbulence coming out of the LASD. Villanueva replaced nearly all of the executive staff at the department when he took over on December 3rd uh, last year. So now Tim Murakami is taking over as the undersheriff. Murakami had previously served as a, cap- a captain at the City of Industry Station uh, before being promoted three ranks to assistant sheriff under Villanueva. Wow, that's yeah. quite the promotion. Yeah, it, <laughs> now he's receiving yet another promotion to the number two position in the department. Uh, Side note, Murakami was also one of the three members of the so-called Truth and Reconciliation panel that concluded that Deputy Mondayan, uh, Villanueva's driver during the campaign and the one that we keep mentioning because he keeps coming up in the news, uh, they, so this, this Truth and Reconciliation panel discover, determined that uh, Mondayan had been punished unfairly following allegations of domestic abuse and stalking. Yeah, this is an interesting one because we don't generally see – like, A, this kind of fallout in the sheriff's department doesn't generally happen. Like, even when Baca was facing the worst of the federal investigation, all of his guys held pretty firm. And yeah. that's, a, that's generally what you see in these almost paramilitary-like organizations. But the other thing this is bringing to light is this is the first time in a long time that the county board is – directly clashing with the sheriff and you don't really see that like the county board's pretty rubber stamp and the board of supervisors at this point is they want Mondoyan gone Uh, and the big thing that's being sued about now is whether Mondoyan gets to keep his gun in his badge Uh, and the the uh, uh, county board is like you have to surrender that now you've been justly and legally fired Uh, the sheriff's department says 
maybe he's been fired, but not justly and legally, and he doesn't <laughs> have to give up his badge. So he's no longer on the job, but yeah, he's, he's still got... Getting, he's not getting paid, but he does have a badge and a gun. Yeah, he's still technically a oh. cop. Like, he could still <laughs> technically be out there enforcing the law. I don't think he is. I think he's just sitting around if waiting he, to get his was, payout. If he was, that is a very scary yeah, proposition. But it's, it's one where you don't generally see a sheriff butting no. heads with the county board, and this is kind of exactly like the county board, for the first time in a really long time, is probably the most progressive body we've got in yeah. in uh, at least Los Angeles County and city, if not the state. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit disconcerting to see a board that's majority women saying, hey, you can't have this dude who's known for abusing women on the force get rid of him. And Vill- Villanueva saying, no, I think I'll keep him. No, I think I, I think I'll use this shady, opaque process to pretend that like what was done to him was wrong, and we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and keep him on the force. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard people talking about how Villanueva is kind of been he he was always running as like the outsider, gonna shake everything up position. Uh, previously, he'd he'd only been in what I believe a lieutenant was the highest rank. Yeah, he was a lieutenant before he uh, left. Yeah, uh, so he never supervised more than uh, like a couple dozen. Uh, deputies, I believe. And now he has the entire department. 3,500 officers. And he wants to expand that by 3,000 more. Wow. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, he came in there and he's basically giving a giant middle finger to the elected officials saying like, nobody likes the job that you guys are doing. I'm going to do it my way. And, um, it's going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Yeah, Let's it's, put it that way. I mean, because like the L.A. County Sheriff's Department uh, is the third deadliest police department in the nation. Uh, even though they're way smaller than LAPD, they shoot a lot of people and they're responsible for law enforcement across a lot of Los Angeles because there's so many unincorporated areas, plus transit, um, plus they're also responsible for security yeah. at all of the government buildings. Like they have a lot of responsibility, plus the jails, like mm-hmm. all of the jailers are sheriff's deputies. And that's one reason that like our deputies are so poorly socialized is because they start their career in a jail and then transition onto the street. So we put them in the most violent, dysfunctional environment that we can find and then put them out and they're like, hey, all the skills that you learned trying to control inmates who don't want to be there and violently hate you, we're now going to turn those skills loose on the street. That should work out great. Yeah, um, so I just wanted to do a a quick plug on a related thing to that of uh – Everyone should go out and listen to the KPCC uh, podcast called uh, Repeat. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a very telling story about sheriff's deputies and, uh, you know, shootings. And it's it's very compelling. It's very well reported. uh, And it's a huge look into all of the dark sides and hidden bits of what it is to be uh, law enforcement in LA and also to be on the receiving end of it. Yeah. I, and it, uh, the, the reporter behind that did a really good interview on uh, the LA podcast yes. um, this last weekend. Uh, the one thing I did want to like, I just want to go off on this for a second for because it. it was a really good interview except for the one part where she's like, when I talk to cops, they're like, I don't want to be the person to shoot somebody, but I have a really hard job. And it's like, F you. You know, I, if a carpenter said, I don't want to swing my hammer, but I have to be a carpenter, you'd be like, that's the dumbest thing ever. You don't become a cop who carries a gun because you don't think you'll ever use it. Like, you don't join the military unless you want to go fight a war. Like, people who are joining and taking up these jobs understand that violence is part of that job and they're choosing to do it and they're cloaking themselves in this, I'm carrying all this weight for society. It's like, you have a hard job because we've done a poor job of orienting society and of building the social structures we need to take care of, like homelessness, drug addiction, and mental health. That doesn't mean that we need you playing this like 
alpha male warrior type figure to make that all right. What we need to do is you to put your energy towards getting a system that doesn't require us to send men with guns every time somebody has a mental breakdown, every time somebody is acting erratically. And this is going to tie in directly to what we're going to move into, which is the Grishario Mac decision, because these issues like just dovetail so well and, and just people keep dying and they don't yeah. need to be. And it's really just making me want to rage quit. Understandably so. So, uh, yeah, uh, for Grishario Mack, the Los Angeles Police Commission has determined unanimously that the officers who shot Grishario Mack at the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza Mall back in April of last year had, quote, violated policy. Uh, quick little bit of background on this. Oh. I was going to say we should caveat this. Yeah. Because they didn't find all of the shots were out Oh, no, no, no. I get into that. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll touch on that at the end because this is just to flag this oh, yeah. for, for you out there. This is a weird legal technicality uh, that is opening the door to some accountability, but when you actually hear it, you're going to be like, that is some weird legal thinking. It, but yeah. I'm just going to flag that now and we'll, we'll move on with oh, the rest it, of the story. Yeah, it, it gets it gets, it gets weird. Uh, yeah, so the uh, situation had been, just for some, some background for everybody, Mac was running uh, through the mall in a state that suggested that he was suffering from a mental health crisis. He was carrying a kitchen knife. When he was commanded by Sergeant Ryan Lee and Officer Martin Robles to drop the knife, he did not comply. So the officers began shooting at him and as customers browsed merchandise in nearby shops. Uh, the basic premise here was that the officers were afraid that he was going to go after customers with the knife, so they feared for their and everybody else's safety, so they opened fire. Uh, after he hit the ground, Mac continued to grip the knife, so both officers fired one additional shot each, mortally wounding Mac. Uh, the police commission has ruled that it was those final two rounds and only those final two rounds which were in violation of the department's use of force policy. And they, they basically are saying that because uh, Grishario Mack was on the ground, those shots yes. were out of out of policy. Uh, the officers, one of whom was firing an AR-15, yes. I, I have to point out, yes. like these weren't just handguns. One was firing a handgun, a nine, uh, their service issue revolver, uh, or not revolver, but their yeah. service issue semi-automatic pistol, yes. and the other one had an AR-15, um, maybe fully automatic. I don't semi-automatic. I'm not sure if LAPD he, carry, carries autos it or was, semis. It was nine rounds from the semi-automatic yeah. rifle, five rounds from the pistol, and it, the guy with the with the um, uh, with the semi-automatic rifle with the AR-15, I believe Robles, uh, was saying he was afraid that Grishario Mack was going to stand up and slash the officers, come at the officers with the knife, or perhaps run into the store and go after uh, people who are innocent bystanders in this. And it makes very little sense when he says he was afraid that Mack was going to come after them because there was a good 10 or 15 feet yes, there was. between him and a man with a knife. Like, maybe Grishario Mack can do a 40 in four seconds flat. I don't think he could after being shot 13 12, 12 times. times. 12, 12 times, times. Yeah. Those last so 12, two shots came. Yeah, so 12 times up to that point. It, it doesn't read that way. It sounds vindictive and it sounds cruel and it honestly sounds like the cops just executed him in a mall. I think that that is a pretty accurate read on the situation. Uh, so again, the commission voted unanimously on this. Um, yeah. And now 
Chief Moore, who had previously taken the stance that all 14 of those shots were within policy, uh, he gets to decide what discipline these officers are going to face. Yeah, and this is this has to go through the uh, Board of Rights, which is two sitting LAPD officers and a civilian who are going to decide if there's going to be uh, any disciplinary action. Uh, we also have to trust uh, DA Jackie Lacey as to whether or not she's going to prosecute these officers for what is basically murder. Um, I, before we get into that, because we are going to touch on that a little bit more, I do have to say that it's kind of... It's a weird qualified relief to see this decision from the Board of Commissioners because they're generally such a rubber stamp uh, group of people. Also, it explains why they took three different meetings to finally come out with this decision. Like, I would love to be a fly on the wall for the discussions that they were having because I think they realized when they saw the community response meeting after meeting after meeting yeah. that they couldn't come out and say, no. oh, no, these these guys get a pass. These two officers were completely in the right. <laughs> But they also didn't want to come out and say, okay, you shot him 14 times. You should be on the hook for all 14 shots. Like they found a weird legal technicality where it's like every single one of your shots was fine up until those last two shots. Those are the only two that don't matter. But that's the legal realm of technicality we're in. And at this point, that's the most accountability we've seen uh, for a police officer since uh, um, the the shooting at Venice Boardwalk a couple of years ago, uh, where even – you know, even Chief Charlie Beck came out after the police commission said this shooting was out of policy. Beck said, hey, uh, this officer who, uh, by the way, has uh, been arrested for domestic violence and stalking uh, since that this shooting is a happened. Trend. Yeah. Uh, but even Beck came out and said, hey, we should prosecute this guy. And Jackie Lacey just let it sit on her desk and laps and nobody ever took up the case when the literal chief of police in L.A. said, prosecute this guy for murder, that was wrong. So it's hard to figure out what's going to get traction with the DA here or what's actually going to make that happen. But I have some hope, like this might be us rounding a corner and beginning to rein in some of these abuses. I'm not positive. Maybe, but... Well, I was going to say, um, <laughs> before we move on, it, it's also in light of the uh, active shooter situation, quote unquote, mm -hmm. at Century City Mall, uh, which didn't turn out to be an active shooter, uh, which also the guy who's the suspect that's been arrested was wearing a Naruto costume, which I found kind of glorified my my anime nerd sensibilities just to be like that's that's, that's interesting yeah uh, but you know they evacuated an entire mall they didn't shoot at anyone they took caution to make sure that everyone was safe there and that everyone got wait, out of the way wait, was he white no oh no but most of the patrons at the Century City Mall are gonna be oh, white oh yeah that's true yeah and so uh, when that happened and Black Lives Matter LA pointed this out you know the way that the police operated at Crenshaw Mall versus the Century City Mall completely different. At Crenshaw Mall, they came out with guns drawn. They came out ready to shoot someone. They were, you know, when the, when the cops were saying, we didn't want him to stab any of the bystanders, it's like, how do you know where every single one of your bullets were going to go? You didn't clear the area. You didn't get people out of the, out of the way. You just opened fire without warning. You could have hit a bystander, but Absolutely. you, you take that same situation to a rich mall on the West side and suddenly, Hey, let's make sure everyone's safe. Wow. Let's make sure everyone it's, it's, it's hard not to see the implicit racism and bias. And I don't think it's that the officers walk into the Crenshaw Mall and say, hey, we're going to be racist a-holes and just like threaten everyone. I think it's the way that those different precincts are run in the city and conditioned to operate and think about their communities yeah. severely different. Because like 
somebody getting shot at the Century City Mall means that wealthy political donors are going to be angry. Yeah, they and are. they're going to cost somebody their job up the chain of command. Somebody getting shot at the Crenshaw Mall, we had to be out there for months. And we're still out there yelling at Lacey every week. And we're getting very little traction for the amount of work that we're putting mm-hmm. in. Like, we're getting traction. But for the amount of man hours and work and energy that goes in, this has been a huge lift just to get to here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> and now on lighter topics. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. So, <laughs> moving on to the lighter topic of police accountability. So, like <laughs> the LA Times editorial board, oh, I have a I have were. a love hate relationship Whew. with them. Um, they they did put out a pretty fire editorial though. They are yeah. really I don't know what happened, but they've kind of begun to come around on police accountability issues. Uh, and they were specifically calling out Herb Wesson, the president of the LA City Council. So let's let's talk well, about this fire they were yeah, spitting. So to be fair. I, I do think that they just genuinely, genuinely do not like Wesson because huh. uh, if you remember with uh, with Measure B, they came out very staunchly opposed to Measure B, be- partially maybe because Herb Wesson was backing it. So, uh, you know, do what you will with that information. It's just supposition on my part. And uh, who knows? But. That being said, on March 20th, the Los Angeles Times editorial board came out in a very full-throated condemnation of the current trajectory of police accountability in Los Angeles. Back in 2017, City Council President Herb Wesson uh, promised a series of hearings around the city on LAPD reform, including uh, excessive force, dishonesty, accountability, officer discipline, and transparency. Wesson told the Times at that point that, quote, there's not one subject I want to duck. Uh, as the Times pointed out, he ducked it. Uh, all of it, really. Uh, what we ended up with was instead that officers get a choice between the Board of Rights that we were discussing earlier, um, that they've always had for disciplinary action, or a new civilian commission that was created through Charter Amendment C back in 2017. Uh, people didn't really even seem to realize that this was on the ballot. It, it was an extraordinarily low turnout vote. Look, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I forgot that thing existed. I remember voting against it because the ACLU said, don't vote for this. Yep. And I was like, I don't know what this is. And and then read a little bit about it and then, oh, yeah, yeah. let's not do that. Um, and, but it, it passed. It passed overwhelmingly um, because it was pitched as a way to improve transparency and accountability and get more civilian insight. While we haven't seen what exactly Charter Amendment C is going to end up producing because the city council still hasn't taken final decisions on it, everything has been happening pretty much behind closed doors and there's really not been much uh, public accountability into the process writ large. But when it comes to the Board of Rights, the editorial board at the LA Times uh, had this to say, quote, but of course, the civilians serving on the Board of Rights are not ethics watchdogs or even a cross-section of ordinary Angelinos. The current pool of hearing officers is overwhelmingly white, with 27 of 37 being white, disproportionately male, 24 of the 37 are male, and members of the social class that is uh, least likely to witness or suffer from officer misconduct that may explain their history of leniency toward officers accused of wrongdoing. Yeah. And it also doesn't help the fact that like when an officer decides to go before the board of rights, they get some say in who hears their case. Yeah. Like you get to pick your own jury. It's it's crazy. And that doesn't make a lot of sense when it's supposed to be a sort of criminal proceeding. I mean, it sort of seems like um, a little bit like a court martial or yeah, like, like some a sort military of, tribunal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which even in those processes, you don't get to pick your judge and jury. Like those decisions are made, uh, quote unquote, objectively. So it's weird that here in L.A., an officer gets to be like, you know what? I want these three people to hear my case. And it's like, but 
you shouldn't be the one to choose that. Like there should be some random lottery. There should be people who are in that position for a certain amount of time. There has to be like some vetting of conflict of interest because from what I understand, conflict of interest isn't even taken into account. Why would it be? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're already cops. So, you know, perhaps perhaps we're expecting too much, Chris. Yeah. But we do have, uh, so to, to circle back around on uh, what we were talking about at the top of the show, uh, with the support of housing, we, yeah. we do have this report card. So everyone in was asking, or basically is trying to push city council every single district to build 222 units of supportive housing every single year for the next three years. Yeah. So that they each get 666 uh, affordable units uh, so that we can meet the 6,000 goal that we're going to set. I mean, the, the original- I think it was for 10,000. Well, the original goal was 10, yeah. but that's gotten sliced down. Now uh, they're looking at 6,000. And huh. of those 6,000 units, I think we have 2,000 are actually um, up to speed or are actually open. Uh, but let's go ahead and talk about this because some some districts are doing surprisingly well and yeah. some districts you would think are doing well are doing surprisingly poorly. Uh, and some districts that uh, you're not at all surprised are doing poorly are doing very poorly. Ha. So uh, quick quick notes. The, the Again, the goal was for 222 per district um, for all 15 districts across the city. Uh, Jose Huizar's district in 14, which does include downtown uh, and Boyle Heights uh, going up in northeast LA, uh, 816 units produced or in the pipeline for, for this at this point. They've been um, approved at this point. Uh, 679 over in Gilsadillo's district 1, uh, 522 in district 8, uh, 475 uh, coming out of uh, CD 13 here with Mitch O'Farrell, which is very good to know and good to see. Uh, nine District nine came out with three sixty six. Uh, Herb Wesson's got three twenty five going in District ten, and then uh, Districts fifteen, eleven, seven, two, six, four, five, three, and twelve are all falling short of that two hundred twenty two goal. And uh, wouldn't you know it that Mitch Englander, who quit his job, uh, came up with zero. Yeah. Zero. And for those of you keeping keeping count, we have six. Six of our 15 are meeting their goal, which means nine of our 15 city council districts are nowhere near meeting their goal. Side note, two members of the Homelessness and Poverty Committee uh, failed utterly to hit that 222 unit production goal. Uh, so again, the worst offender on this thing was uh, Mitch Englander, but he's not a city council member anymore. Uh, Bob Blumenfeld uh, got 13 of them approved over in District 3. Uh, it's, again, this this really is just part of a larger trend that housing for the homeless is still being disproportionately slated for the lower income areas across the city, especially in and around downtown, and doesn't really make much of an impact in the more affluent areas around the city, despite the fact that there are homeless people literally everywhere in LA. Yeah, and it, it's also one, I just learned this today. So uh, Bob Blumenfeld's wife, uh, oh. She used to be the CEO of Liberty Hill. Okay. Uh, the current CEO of Liberty Hill happens to sit on the uh, police commission, uh, which is a little bit weird. Huh. Uh, Liberty Hill, for those of you who don't know, is a huge funder of progressive causes. Uh, full disclosure, they do fund power. People organize for Westside Renewal. We do receive grants from them. Um, but uh, Bob Blumenfeld's wife had to step down as that CEO when he ran for office because, like, that you can't be yeah. doing that sort Conflicts. of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's weird that Blumenfeld's wife would be, a, you know, formerly a, a chief executive officer who's helping fund some of the most progressive causes in Los Angeles, giving money to pretty much every lefty group here. And then he's only built 13 units of supportive housing. Like, uh, money, mouths, the placement thereof. And not in my backyard. 
Yeah, it's just it's depressing. It is cool to see like at least those six districts yes. are kind of knocking it out of the park. Yeah, like no. even the even the <laughs> even the least successful of those six is still a hundred units ahead of that goal. Yeah. So if we can keep that going for the next few years, at least like with with CD fourteen, where like a lot of the housing crisis is centered because of Skid Row and everything, yeah. we're gonna see a lot of progress. Like that is helping people. That is a move towards more stability. And again, there's there is a natural um, concentration of homelessness that happens in CD fourteen and. It is, it is unavoidable because of the way that we deal with the homeless. It is not just a fact that there is a concentration of services. The homeless don't congregate in Skid Row because they want to be in Skid Row because they have access to services there, although they do. They congregate in Skid Row because it's right there, and after they get arrested and processed through jail, when they walk out the door, that's where they are. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, that was one <laughs> We've thing. we said this over and over yeah. and over, and I will keep saying it until people tell me to shut up about yeah, it. Yeah, no, at Occupy ICE, there were dozens of folks that I helped get yeah. Ubers back to their family that I gave food and clothing to because we had free food and clothing to give them. It and was, they just got out of jail with yeah, nothing. The city literally gives you, like, some of your stuff back, assuming that it's stuff if that you can be— they brought yeah. it with? Yeah, and then they just kick you out onto the street, and it's like, have yourself a nice life. And it's like, but I need to get back to Wilmington. It's like, well, best of luck with that, sir. Good luck. The city of Los Angeles— really hopes that you're able to get back to your friends and family. We'll provide you no support. Like, I came out of Union Station, or I was coming through Union Station, get off the red line, come upstairs. Guy who clearly just got out of uh, Twin Towers. Apparently he'd been in for 18 months. He just looks me in the eyes like, sir, do you have a phone I could use? I was like, yeah, you know what? I can help you with the phone. Uh, We were able to call a halfway house within Mm -hmm. about 15 minutes of calling. We were able to get him on a gold line out to Boyle Heights where he was going to get into uh, a Christian halfway house so he could get back on his feet, a recovery program he'd been through before. Okay. Literally, random dude with a cell phone, more help than the $9 billion city of Los Angeles. Your tax dollars at work, folks, so pay me for my phone plan (laughs) because it's helping more than the city is. Yeah, great. So, but let's round this out on a comedy note, like okay. before Chris and I get like super apoplectic here. Uh, so Jose Weizar, yeah, even more so. Uh, so Jose Weizar, uh, councilman, allegedly corrupt extraordinaire, has pulled another just amazing move. Like just yeah. the, the 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 word chutzpah is made for this situation. It's, and and it, that was used in the tweet. Uh, so what's what's going on here is that, you remember that lawsuit from the uh, Huizar's former staffer? Maya I mean, there's Alvarez. so many of them. So this is one of one of the two from the former staffers from last summer, uh, both of whom I believe currently work for Wendy Carrillo over in 8051. I think only one of them does. Oh, but now? It's, it's, okay, yeah, anyway. It's, yeah. Maya Alvarez had apparently uh, been very much uh, harassed and uh, like emotionally abused by Huizar while uh, working for him. Allegedly, and she also said that he had her uh, uh, oh, delete calendar right? events oh, yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. To, to mask his meetings oh, with developers. So yeah, she's got some of the real dirt on him. Yes, she does. Uh, and also the whole like uh, organizing his wife's campaign in city <sighs> offices on city dime uh, with city workers on city hours. Yeah, not allowed to do that, folks. Uh, anyway, so Michael Kohas, who runs a very very fascinating uh, journalistic site uh, documenting the really interesting stuff that is going on, specifically in downtown related to the business improvement districts, um, and generally just somebody who is digging for the dirt anywhere they can find it on all of our uh, allegedly corrupt officials within the city, um, found that Jose Huizar had filed a petition with the Los Angeles County Superior Court uh, asking for a refund of his $435 filing fee. Where did the developer money go, Jose? <laughs> Say you're too broke to pay a five hundred dollar no, no, no. court fee. Where's the millions of dollars of developer My money? My guess is it's more along the lines of being cheap and just trying to you know 
I think he's trying to save it up for his eventual lawyer fees. That's my guess. Because One billable hour. <laughs> hey, maybe that'll be the hour that saves him from uh, federal prison. But the, uh, the point here is that you can, as a city employee, uh, file to get refunds of your court filing fees because that's just a thing that happens. It's just If you're remarkable. broke in this city and they oh, arrest yeah. you on Skid Row, you can't say, I'm too broke to pay nope. my, my court fees. They'll just send you to jail. But if you're Jose effing Weezar, who's taken, like, allegedly millions of dollars from developers to uh, help push along their insane, stupid developments in downtown, you can say, Which I don't... not finishing oh building, my, by the way. <laughs> just, I, I'm gonna... When I get back to downtown, I'm just gonna find the <laughs> first unfinished skyscraper and just kick it like i'm just gonna kick it it's really easy you can just go to the 7th street metro station get on the uh the blue line or the expo line and get take one stop and then you're there there's so many of them that are unfinished out in the arts district where (laughs) oh yeah there's a bunch there's like 1500 market rate units getting ready to come online in the next like six months to a year it's gonna be so bad so bad and there's also no grocery store out there except for the really crappy grow DTLA um, enough griping <laughs> about my new neighborhood that's just a literal food desert uh, just yeah, full of rich white so people who Postmates those. everything so many of those oh, alright well so this On has been note. yeah this has been a, a, a very fascinating week in the city of LA uh, like I said uh, things to keep in mind April 16th there is going to be another ECCEJ committee meeting where we're going to hopefully get more uh, uh, concrete plans for a Green New Deal for Los Angeles uh, April 26th we're we're bringing the Green New Deal road tour to Los Angeles yeah. Trade Tech College. Tickets for that will be on sale very soon. And to flag another one for you, April 17th, uh, over uh, by Chinatown, by State Historic Park, uh, Ground Game is throwing their first event fundraiser. We're going to have a big party. Yeah. Uh, you can come join us. Ticket sales for that will be live soon. I think they're live now. You can check that out on our Facebook page. And we really want you to come. Come party with us. Meet the crew. Help us raise some money so we can keep doing this work. Uh, and hopefully, you know, maybe we can get another podcast on. That would be really fun. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening to us this week. And yeah. All the, all the times that you listen yeah. to us. Yeah. It's fun. We'll see you soon. See ya.